we're taking a small break from the theme of season two. Um, I'm going to ask Dennis to answer some listener questions specifically around market performance and whether or not we should be holding our nerve. Welcome to season two of the Century Plan, a podcast that looks at financial independence, how you achieve it and how you maintain it during a lifetime which may see people born today living to age 100. With me, Dennis Hall, Chartered Financial Planner and owner of Yellowtail Financial Planning. And me, Sarah Steele. I'm co-director at Yellowtail, but on the podcast I'm here to ask questions on behalf of you, the consumer. Dennis, we've been getting a few questions recently about disappointing portfolio returns. Um, And with interest rates as high as they are, listeners um, are asking whether it's a good idea to pull out of the markets and lock into a high rate of return for a year or so. Um, Yes, it's a question that we've been receiving here and there. So let's take a look at what's been happening, because you're right, there has been a change of sentiment for some investors and I'm liking this to portfolio resilience versus investor resilience. Um, So what we've got is a situation where low interest rates have now become high interest rates, and it might stay that way for a while. I mean, I don't think we're going to move um, to those almost zero interest rates that we had for the best part of a decade. Mm. I think those times have gone. So, you know, decent interest rates, 2 or 3%, could be the norm for quite some time. The markets themselves appear to have gone sideways over a period of years. Um, and that could be that bond prices that make up a lot of people's portfolios have been falling and have dampened any sort of equity returns. But whichever way you look at it, the portfolios look as though they've not done very much over the last five years or so. We've had a period also where investors have normally expected that when Equities have gone high, bonds have perhaps um, put a dampener on it, but when equities have fallen, the bonds have done well. Mm. And that's not been the case. The two have been quite strongly correlated over the last year or so. Equity markets have gone down and bond markets have gone down, and that's not what people were expecting. Um, and I think that's that's not the confidence of a lot of people. And has given a sort of just added to the general nervousness that sits around Globally at the moment, there are all kinds of global geopolitical problems. Um, And there is almost a sort of a doomsday sense or scenario around. So it's it's a difficult time. And if you're the kind of person that's, you know, relying on your investments to provide you with an income or you've got retirement looming and it's going to form part of your long term future, you may be thinking about what is the best thing to do. Okay. So understandably, the question some investors are asking is, should I come out of the market? Um, you know, should I be trying to time the market? Well, I mean, as you, as you know, this is, I don't think people should be doing that. I think essentially by asking that question, and if you do that, you're really kicking the can down the road. If you have a long-term investment horizon, mm-hmm. and investors should be having a long-term investment horizon, I always talk about people who are saving up for their retirement at the point that they retire, the the investment decision doesn't stop at that point. It really is only part way through its journey. And if you've got a 25 or 30 year retirement period, 
plus the accumulation stage that you might be in. These are long-term decisions that you're making. Trying to then make a series of short-term decisions about interest rates, equity markets, are just going to lead you to a lot of trouble. Every so often, you're going to be trying to second-guess what the market's doing. And yes, it's possible that you could make the right call. It's possible that you might repeat that for, uh, for, for a few times. But the more times you have to try and second guess the market, make a call, the more chances there are that you're going to get it wrong. Mm. Mathematically, the more chances are you're going to get it wrong. Mm. And as I have seen in previous market turmoils, professionals are generally getting late out of the market and generally getting late back in. So they've already taken some of the downside and then missed some of the upside. Whereas if I compare those sort of active market timing portfolios with a very simple tracker in whatever proportion of equities and bonds there are, those tracker portfolios have tended to do better. Okay, Okay. all right. Well, that makes sense. But how about comparing people who've been invested for a long period and those who might be relatively recent investors? say, the last five years or so, which is the sort of period we're talking about, or people who are starting to draw down on their investments, relying on it for their income? I think the thought process of those two groups are going to be very different. Um, So people who have been in the markets for 20 or 30 years have been building up and probably drawing down on their portfolios now will have seen all this before. you know, or, or something very, very similar. We've had a series of, of um, sort of cycles yeah. um, where markets have gone up and down. Those people that have stuck the course have seen falls of, you know, 30, even 40% sometimes in the value of their investments, held their nerve and come through, have seen some spectacular gains post sort of bear markets or post crash. Um, And so we'll probably say, well, this is just business as usual. But, you know, you were talking about that five year plus just, you know, you invested just before COVID struck, perhaps, you know, enjoyed a potentially a a couple of good years. And then you'd wiped out all of those gains within two months. um, And then it's been a bumpy ride all the way along. And the the bit that you thought was going to look after your portfolio, the bonds, as soon as interest rate rose, the price of bonds collapsed. So. It's, you're probably wondering, why did I even invest in the first place? Because you've got that short-term experience and perhaps just short-term approach, forgetting to look at that sort of 20, 25, 30-year period that I keep talking about. Yeah, and we've talked about looking back, you know, historically, um, you can see the cycles and we can see what's happened sort of 20, 50, 100 years ago. Um can, can people who are sort of experiencing, those sort of recent investors that are experiencing the market falls at the moment, can they look at, at, at times in history that sort of compare with what's happening now and, and use that as a sort of reassurance? Um, they should look at and get reassurance, but they tend not to. Right. I, I think people tend to look at the worst case. Look, there's a crash, there's a crash. What can I learn from the crash? Well, no two crashes are the same. And yes, there are some people who say they can predict predict market falls, mm. um, 
And there are some gloom merchants around constantly prophesizing a market collapse. I mean, I, I've been around long enough to remember the name Bob Beckman. Yeah. And maybe there are some people listening who can remember that name. He was an American who achieved fame in the UK in the 70s and the 80s with his constant doom-laden predictions of the stock market. Well, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of behavioural investing. We have this recency bias. What's happening in the markets now is going to dictate to us how we feel markets are always going to to, to react. Yeah. Um, and so if we're experiencing this now, we've somehow we've got to um, step outside of ourselves and our most recent experience. So that's the problem that Bob Beckman had, really. Mm. By age 26, he'd already made a million dollars on the US stock market. Um, but by age 27, he'd lost it. Right, yeah. um, and so for him... The stock market was always going to be a place where he could make a fortune, but just as quickly lose it. Uh, he wrote several books. Um, I did read one. It was called The Down Wave that was predicting the Second Great Depression, which never happened. In 1996, he said that there would be no property boom in the 90s. And yet house values or house prices had tripled in value between 1996, when he made that um, prophecy, and the time he died in 2007, just about a decade when he was saying there's going to be no property growth, house prices tripled. So, no, I don't think we can. <clears throat> and, and so for me, I'd be thinking, right, it feels pretty bad at the moment, but it's been pretty bad in a very technical term before, hasn't it? Yeah, we've, we've had those crashes. I mean, I've gone through four of them. Okay. Um, Black Monday, October 1987 was was pretty gruesome. Um, I, I think I'd only been in the job three months. Oh. <laughs> and you're <laughs> and still thinking, here. Oh, my goodness. Um, and and uh, telling people to invest their hard-earned money uh, only to see 30% of it disappearing, or actually about 34% of it uh, for UK equities. We had the dot-com bubble uh, between 2000 and 2002. That was a long, drawn-out sort of... You say crash, you expect crashes to be sort of instantaneous. But this was just a long, drawn-out war of attrition almost. Mm. Um, where stock markets took about almost two years to go from their peak to the to their bottom. We had the credit crunch between 2008 and 2009, mm. not quite as drawn out. Um, and then COVID-19 in 2020, which people recognise, where the market just almost within days just collapsed. Yeah, yeah. But all of those cycles, the markets have recovered. So we don't know how long it takes for the market to go down. We don't know how long it takes for it to recover. It could happen within 12 to 18 months. It could take two, three or even four years to get some kind of recovery, to get back to where you were before. Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, what you need in sort of overall portfolio construction is to say, I've got enough liquidity elsewhere to ensure that I don't have to eat the seed corn, you know, I don't have to dip into yeah. my equities. I can wait for them to recover. Because we know that long term the drivers of performance are going to be equities. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that sort of emergency fund that we mentioned before and perhaps we'll touch on in another podcast. Yeah, we will. Um so going back to bonds and equities, now that there's been a bond crash uh, is this the time to be loading up on bonds? Well, I get that. I do get asked that question a lot, <laughs> even by experienced investors who are saying, well, you know, I know you keep trying to encourage me to load up on equities, Dennis, but um, 
surely this is an opportunity to load up on bonds. Yeah. Um, but I don't think so. I mean, like all markets, um, there isn't enough evidence out there to say that bonds are mispriced at the moment. You know, there's a bargain. Someone's got the pricing all wrong. Yeah. Because markets do attempt to price in and predict the future. So, that you know, they are anticipating what they think interest rates are going to be. If there was going to be a bounce in bond prices, that would already be reflected in the price of bonds at the moment. Mm. Of course, if interest interest rates moved quicker than the markets are predicting, then there could be some additional upside or downside, depending which way that those prices went. Um, But no, I I think that that long-term approach that we have, saying if I'm invested for the long term, the probability of better outcomes always improves when you increase the equity component of that portfolio. Yeah, all right. Well, but as an aside, where else could people invest? Should we be thinking about gold? <laughs> uh, it's another question that comes You're up. Laughing at my questions. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just it's almost. Um, well, you're just coming up with all the questions that, that just get fired my way. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've got a bit of gold and. Uh, Gold over the long, long term has been fairly disappointing. Yeah, sure, it's beaten inflation. And we've got to look at once upon a time in, in a time when there was very little portability and people, if they needed to take their wealth anywhere, gold coins were it, or diamonds, perhaps, you know, mm. gold coins and sew them in the lining of your coat and, mm. and off you get very heavy. Um, yeah. But it just really hasn't performed. You'll have seen that I've got this chart, in this huge wall chart sitting on a table yeah. in front of me. And if I look at, it, it, this is looking at returns over the very long term, I hasten to add. I'm going right back to about 1925 with this chart. Mm. But if I look at the returns of different types of asset class since 1925 to, to today, of the asset classes that I've got here, and there are 10 of them, uh, and one of those includes inflation, ranging from uh, cash, UK equities, um, property, gold, um, global equities and emerging market equities, for example. Gold sits down there in sixth place. Oh, right. Okay. Um, it, it, yep, it's it's beating UK property over the long term, but we've got to remember UK property was in the doldrums for most of that period since 1925. Um, it's 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 not performed as well as global bonds, for example. Okay. And by a country mile, if anyone uses that phrase anymore, <laughs> by a country mile, equities have of of outperformed things like cash bonds, property um, over the time. In fact, the best performer over that period of time has been emerging markets. But boy, has it been volatile. The portfolio that I tend to to recommend for myself and all of my clients is global equities with just enough liquidity, either in short dated bonds, bond funds, or these days cash, you can get a very good return on cash. Um, you know, to get that sort of short-term liquidity needs. Everything else should be in global equities. Nice and simple. It has produced over that period an average annual return of about 12%. Okay. 
Right, right. Um, is Lego on there as an asset class? You've been reading the same <laughs> stories that I have. No, yeah. it's not. It's an interesting one to look at, isn't it? Um, it's such a tiny market, really. Uh, I it, mean, it, if it everybody makes... wanted to invest in Lego, I don't know what would happen to that oh, Lego no, price. I really wish I kept all the boxes, though. <laughs> My son had his Lego in, because they retire them, they retire the pieces, so... You know, they become very valuable, but... Uh, yeah, I believe they if, do. If I've only. never owned Lego. Oh, right, OK. Ever. Yeah. And I've never played with Lego, so I just don't know what the attraction is. Well, it's very expensive to buy. OK, that's another reason <laughs> I don't go near it. it's more expensive <laughs> if you want to buy it further down the line. Um, anyway, back to uh, bonds and equities. Um, so you, we've been talking about balanced investors being hit harder by this crash than those with higher equity content. And you, you kind of touched on that, but can you just take us through that again? Uh, yeah, I think there's an awful lot I've missed out here. Typically, I, I think, you know, when regulation started coming in, because, you know, people would go to an advisor and say, I want to invest my money and end up in all kinds of things. You know, this month, Japan equities look great. They might have been told back in the 1980s, put all your money in Japan and the next thing you know, the Japanese stock market crashes and for the next two decades, they've lost all of their money. Um, so regulation came in to try and match people's risk profiles, mm. you know, their, yeah. um, to the kind of investments they should be having. Um, but a very blunt tool you know, they, the industry came out with a series of questionnaires, risk profiling tools that by their nature seem to herd everybody into being balanced investors, the terminology, where they would have between 50 and 60 percent in equities, shares, and 50 and 60, uh, sorry, 40 percent or thereabouts, 50 percent in bonds. Mm -hmm. So things that would be termed as sort of uh, higher risk assets and defensive assets, growth, defensive Equities, bonds. Mm. And that seems to make sense. And for a while that made, uh, assumed to make sense to a lot of people. But it, all it's really doing is measuring people's comfort around volatility. Just how much does my portfolio or my investments go up or down? It's not really looking at what their needs are, what their capacity is to take those losses. Um, and I think that by trying to meet the needs of the regulator, yeah. somehow the industry has backed itself and its clients into a corner by measuring volatility rather than measuring capacity for loss or the needs that the portfolio needs to have. And, you know, belatedly, the regulator has come out and saying exactly that same thing. Capacity for loss is something that we need to be looking at. And, you know, several years ago, um, I and advisors like me, planners like me, have said that, you know, this volatility measurement is doing people a disservice mm. because the evidence, the empirical academic research and evidence tells us that a higher equity content in the portfolio is generally going to lead to better outcomes, particularly for those people that have got long-term requirements of their portfolios. They're building up their own pension portfolio on which they want to draw down. So the higher the equity content, the better the return, to the point where we are moving people closer and closer and closer to 80 or even 90% equities. All we want to make sure is that they have enough liquidity to meet three, four, five years worth of income needs in case markets tumble, because they do and they will. 
Okay, and that's actually a good point. So three, four, or five years worth of liquidity. At least. Right, okay, okay. Something to think about. All right, so the litmus test here, really, when we're talking about equities, and, and you've said before that your your pension is 100% in equities. Are you remaining there? I am. I see no reason to change. And I take my own medicine. Um, I don't try to overcomplicate it. I have global equity funds, um, the lowest cost funds I can find. I always like to compare one against the other. So I might have um, one with uh, fund house A and one with fund house B. They generally do the same thing. There's a little bit of tracking error between the two. But, you know, uh, sometimes people want an alternative. So I, I, I've, I've got them there. So in my pension fund, low cost tracker funds. Yes, I've got a little bit of play money. <laughs> and I'm not telling you words. I've got a little bit of play money because we all, even even me, knowing that I'm probably unlikely to outperform the market without taking higher risk, have a little bit of play money. Right. Okay. So anyway, the question at the beginning of the podcast is: Should I be holding my nerve? It sounds like you are. I'm holding my nerve. I want everyone else to hold their nerve. I think if they've been working with good planners or they've worked it out themselves. They will have enough money in that emergency fund or their, their liquidity fund to, to tide them through bad times and allow them to get through it. And the more cycles they go through and the, the, the more periods of, of generally phenomenal performance as you come out of these, these um, bear markets, they will convince themselves. It's, I think, those people that have been listening to the... Their best mate, the guy in the pub, the, 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 there's always someone with a red-hot tip who's, who, who may be losing more than they anticipated or maybe not even taking enough risk. Okay, great. Well, hopefully that answers the questions then. Thank you, Dennis. I hope so. <laughs>